Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Fool, you must say that to the Savior of sinners. The church deserted must take herself to Christ and search him out. Quote, have you seen him who my soul loves? Every episode we bring you a different voice from history in a sermon that they delivered. Today we're hearing a sermon from Samuel Rutherford. He preached this sermon sometime in the mid-1600s. Troy, how are you doing today? I'm great. So we are officially moved into our new house in Indonesia. So for last week you heard us say we were in Indonesia. We'd moved countries. kind of dropped under the southern hemisphere and now we are in our house that we will be staying in the studio we want to build for podcasting not yet built we have some visa work to do so we can open a bank account lots of stuff there but we're slowly but surely getting to where we need to go which is great and it's nice to finally kind of be in the place it's it's a nice place we're really we're really uh excited it's much better than the um apartment in the side of the fourth floor of a school where we were staying before so this has been very nice (laughs) Well, I, I expect some speedy uh, chop chop, Troy. Next next episode, <laughs> next sermon, uh, I expect it to sound crystal clear over there. Perfect. So uh, yeah. you got some work to do. We got all the Revive Studios um, team audio managers and, you know, all the engineers mm-hmm. coming together on this. Um, so hopefully soon, you know, but there's a lot of red, red, red paper tape or whatever. Red <laughs> paper. Joel, Samuel Rutherford, who is someone we have not done before, which is so funny because both Joel and I, when, we were kind of, when I was doing the prep, I was like, have I not done Samuel Rutherford? Yeah, we thought for like, sure we had guy. a Rutherford. We don't. This is our first time doing it. And when I was doing the research, I realized, oh, I've never I've never done this guy before. He's really he's really interesting. He just seemed like somebody we should have done by now. So it's exciting to do it. One, one recommendation if you're new or you're listening, you're not sure, hey, what do I think of Samuel Rutherford? He comes highly recommended by Charles Spurgeon, who said that Rutherford's Letters, which is a book that gets published, we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, is as close to the ins- as divine inspiration as human writing can ever get. Now, you know, Spurgeon's not saying he is divinely inspired. He's just saying as close to humans can get to writing something on the same level as God, which is a far distant gap, I'm sure he means. There's a, there's a big gap This there, is it. Yeah. This is this is the height of it. So Samuel Rutherford, that's a pretty big recommendation from him. Uh, and so we're excited to finally get an episode on him. Yes, Samuel Rutherford, born in the year 1600 even. I like the ones that are born right at the beginning of the century because uh, whenever the year takes place, you know how old they are. Automatically, <laughs> it's easy to calculate. Uh, born into a poor family, the, the part of the country they were in at the time was just, was just called Scottish Borders. And he came from an ordinary family. They were either a farmer or miller, some type of, of working class. They're not not noble birth is what we're trying to say there. You wouldn't have a movie made about them being a prince or anything like that. Normal guy. Uh, he had brothers. One brother grew up to be a teacher. Another grew up to be a soldier in the Dutch army. Uh, but there's nothing in Rutherford's family that really set him up for success. He got himself an education, went to the University of Edinburgh, and he eventually settled into a professor role there at the at the same school. It's said that he converted to Christianity in the year 1624, so 24 years old. You know, see, it's helpful. <laughs> it's nice. Uh, 24 years old, 
you know, we don't see a whole lot of evidence of that in his life. Uh, a few years later, in 1626, he actually got fired from being a teacher, and there's some debate around this this whole scandal, uh, but it seems like it's most likely attributed to an immoral uh, conduct between him and a girl that he would end up making his wife, uh, but it doesn't seem like, you know, while he might have had a profession of faith or might have come to know the Lord, and by all means, there are genuine believers that screw up and make really bad errors, and that might be what is going on here, but um, we see this this structure of uh, this guy coming from nowhere, becoming a Christian, and then pretty much ruining his, his career by having this illicit relationship with a girl that he liked. So it's kind of like, where do you go from here, right? You know, But there must have been something in this situation that turned out for good, even though you know, there was death. And, and when we say immoral conduct, I, I mean, I believe he had a full-on you know, relationship with her, but we don't know. It could have just been that they looked like they were having a relationship, or it could have just been, I, I don't know what the Puritan 1600s conduct was. You know, was it just they were out too late, or was it that they were caught in the middle of something? We don't know all the, all the scandalous details. And again, some people don't think anything happened at all. Now, what looked like a bad situation ended up turning out for his good. In 1627, about a year after this, he becomes a minister. So despite whatever happened in this immoral conduct relationship, despite whatever falling he had, he now was suddenly very much on fire for God. Seems like he's really experienced the grace of God here. One person described him as always preaching, always praying, always visiting the sick, always catechizing or teaching the youth, and always writing and studying. And if we knew nothing else about him, that would make him a worthy minister to me. If others described you with that kind of zeal, I think it'd be a sign you love Jesus quite a lot. It was said he would wake up at 3 a.m. to be ready for all he needed to do in the community that day. This went on for five years until, sadly, his wife, who had been struggling with the disease for 13 months, died. On top of that, the, thir- the three months leading up to that disease killing his wife, he himself had been sick and almost died of fever multiple times. So those last few months together, he's not even really able to take care of her. He himself is on death's door. Before the year is over, um, his own sons will end up passing away during this time too, of the same, I mean, from what I can tell, the same fever. So his entire family and almost himself dies basically in one year due to this horrible fever that takes them. This would have been enough to break many Christians that I can't even imagine, I'm sure it would break me. Reminds me of the story of Adoniram Judson, who Elise covered on Martyrs and Missionaries, who when his wife and his young child died, he kind of made a hut in the jungle and just sat there for 40 days to kind of process the grief of losing them. And when Felix Carey, the son of William Carey, lost his wife and children and the translation of the Bible he'd been working on, all in one ship, it went into the sea. He never really truly recovered. If you've listened to that episode also on Martyrs and Missionaries, you'll see that he just never comes back the same. But Rutherford, through the grace of God, though he suffered, he did not waver in his faith and trust in God. And in fact, it seemed to light even more fire under him for the love of his people and his congregation. Yeah, I mean, just as a side note, it it is really interesting to see this dramatic shift in his personality. Again, you know, we talk about him not coming from a, a past that there's any evidence of a significant fervor for the Lord. Uh, you know, obviously getting into some controversies there with this young woman. And then there's a shift. There's something that, that changes where he is all in. And, you know, I, I feel like I, I can only attribute it towards the Holy Spirit, you know, working in him and, and using him in that. And that's really neat to see. And it continues throughout his whole life. The tragedy of losing his family is heartbreaking. 
but he had he had he had some other trials literally trials because <laughs> this is uh, there there's a lot of controversy in England as a whole right now you know this is post reformation leading up to the English civil war uh, the rules on faith and how you can uh, interact with displaying faith and talking about faith are becoming really really strict and he was labeled we see this a lot in this era a nonconformist which basically means that uh, you're saying things that aren't in accordance with what the Church of Scotland is approved, is due, which many of the pure, I mean, that is, all of the Puritans at this time were, were nonconformists, essentially. And so he would write these these papers, these documents, and he would get in trouble for them, and they would actually go to court to see if he's guilty of these heresies, in air quotes, I'm doing here. There's one account of him getting ready for this court appearance and some of the judges that were supposed to be presiding at the trial were caught in a bad storm and they weren't able to make it uh, to the hearing. And one of the judges that was there in town with him happened to be friends with him and, and ended up letting him go. But uh, like like any Puritan in this area that's that's hardcore and committed, he would continue to write stuff and continue to get in trouble by the, the church state there. Uh, and end up in other trials. Again, well, another one in 1634, and then finally in 1636, this was the big one, the one that would uh, would be the last straw for uh, the work he was doing there. 1636, you know how old he was uh, when that happened, Troy? <laughs> 36, well, see, it's so easy, it's great. born in 1636. <laughs> I'm trying to think if we have any other people born right on that zero zero. We do, but I can't remember the last time we had one. We definitely do, yeah. He had written, so he'd been writing theology books against Arminians, and this was just kind of the final straw for the for the state church of Scotland. Remember, like, the government and the church are blended together here. And sometimes you just have to kind of step back and think about how crazy this is. I mean, people have contentious issues all the time. They debate Arminianism and Calvinism all the time online. But imagine if you're on the wrong side of that. You know, you're posting the wrong opinions on Facebook or Instagram, or you're writing the wrong kind of blogs. Imagine that the courts of the government are coming for you and are sending you to jail, sending your friends to jail. I mean, in his lifetime, Rutherford will have multiple friends go to jails or to jail and two of his friends will be executed. Uh, you know, close friends of his, people riding beside him basically will be executed for their opinions on theology, for their opinions on human will versus God's sovereignty. That's, you know, I sometimes just think that's a little crazy that that was such a such a thing, and yet that's exactly you know what is going on now. Arminianism in the 1600s is very different than Arminianism today. So there, there, it, this is a big difference. But still, it's just you have to step back and go, wow, we are you know we're quite blessed that Joel and I can record this, and we don't have to worry about saying something about one party you know wrong and getting thrown in jail afterwards for it. So in 1636, he gets brought before the courts, and basically he's sent into exile. He's sent away from the town where his church is and sent to a small rural town where he's not allowed to leave. He is told if he is caught teaching or preaching again, it's straight to jail, and he will no longer be allowed to do any of the things that he has been doing before. Now, remember, Rutherford lost his entire family and just poured himself into his congregation and his church and being a loving minister. This was a hard blow to him, and this was a hard blow to the congregation, obviously. A quote from him at the time said, Duty is ours, the events are the Lord's, which is, I did my job, and what God does with it next, that's up to him. He said of these events, he was discouraged, he felt useless, and was confined to this small town where he wouldn't be allowed to do what he loved to do, which was preach. 
But he did not give up on his congregation. He began writing letters. Letter after letter after letter he wrote to his members of his congregation and to the congregation as a whole. He poured his heart, soul, and ministry into these letters. They are end up being what he was remembered for today. The love, the care, the teaching, the way he wrote about Christ, the way he poured himself into it, these are those same letters that Spurgeon said were as closest to inspired as we'll ever get. You know, even though he thought he was useless and that he had been pulled away from his congregation, in some ways what he ended up doing would last not just for his little church, but the whole world would be grateful. Yeah, so he wanted to leave exile and get back to work, but uh, in one of his letters he wrote, it is not for us to set the hourglass for the creator, meaning that, you know, everything is in God's time. These letters that he wrote would be published after his death, and they have never gone out of print since. They are still printed to this day, and they're still circulated. Again, it's still what he's known for the most. In 1638, his Exile ended, and the Presbyterians won over Scotland. He was able to go back and preach, and he accepted a position as a professor, but it was on the stipulation that as long as it didn't interfere with him preaching. In the 1640s, he was a representative in London for Westminster Assembly, and was considered an important author in the Shorter Catechism, which is like a founding creed for Presbyterians. It has a a notable opening line that says, What is the chief end of man? He also wrote a book called Lex Rex in 1644. Troy, tell us a little bit about Lex Rex. So Lex Rex was a book that said monarchies and kings, you know, the people who rule need to be hemmed in by limitations. If we said on the program, and we've said this on our recent episode of John Calvin, that he was really famous for helping initiate this idea that all are created equal. It was Rutherford who began to say that kings have to follow God's law. Like, basically, if a king breaks the rule, the state has to punish them. The idea before was all men are created equal, but who was going to take the king to court and use the state to bring, basically tell the king, if you break the laws, you have to go to jail just like everyone else. Rutherford was the one who started saying, no, 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 everyone's created equal, so even the kings have to follow the rules they make, because the true rule... The true law that is over everybody is God's law. Now, this had a huge effect on people who came after him, John Locke, John Adams, the people who founded the United States. All of this came out of Lex Rex. And this idea of just having a law that could apply to everyone would just be, it sounds kind of obvious to us. Like we go, of course, yeah, even our leaders can't break the rules. And if they do, they should go to jail. But to them at this time, this was huge. The king just was not, nobody would have ever said a king or a prince was under that kind of rule. Now, after Cromwell's time in England, when the king returned, you can probably imagine, because the king comes back into England, takes over England again, and he's getting kind of back payback at the people he didn't like. And Lex Rex, this book that said, hey, it's totally justified for you as a king to go to jail if you break the rules, was on the top of his list. And imagine, you're in a kind of, not, not the different country, but you're in a different, you're in Scotland, this is England, and you write a book about the kings and who should rule. And that, again, we might hear that, some of you might be listening going, that sounds like kind of a boring book. Well, it was such a powerful book that he was literally on the top of King Charles's payback list. Like he literally, as soon as he got into office, immediately sent out a notice and said, bring Rutherford to me. He needs to stand trial. Parliament that he kind of took over immediately stripped Rutherford of all of his offices and all of his honors. And in fact, while they were executing their, you know, first people that they wanted executed because Rutherford was so far away, they took a copy of this book, Lex Rex, and they burned it 
in front of everyone on a stake, basically saying, this is what we think of this book, this is what we think of the author. And they had other people come and throw their copies of the book into the fire as well. He's very unhappy with the Samuel Rutherford. He hates this book that called him out. He hates that everyone read it and agreed with it. And he's trying to get him back. So he sends a notice and says, you know, Rutherford, come to London. You're gonna stand trial for this book that you wrote about us, basically, the Kings. Well. Rutherford famously writes him back and says, hey, I've got a summons already before a superior judge and court, and I will have to answer my first summons before I get to you, but someday your day will come, and when you get there, you will see me in a place where few kings and few great folks go. Now, he meant that he was going to die, and the greater judge was God, and he was saying, I'm going to go see God and stand before his court when you get there someday. Um, you'll see me on the side of heaven. You'll see me on the side where the great ones go. Now, he said this because he was really sick at the time. And so when he was being called to go to London, there was no way he was going to be able to get to go there because he knew he wouldn't make the trip. And he was right. Within a few days of writing that response, he did die. So the king never did get his real payback. I mean, yes, Rutherford died, but Rutherford died with the last word, and that's not what the king wanted. Now you can listen to a sermon by a man who fought with kings, courts, trials, who lost his wife and children, yet you can see that he faithfully followed God all the way to the end. Quote, Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. Unquote. Matthew 15:25 Christ had denied her to be his but she will not deny that Christ is hers see how a believer is to carry himself towards Christ when they feel deserted we see first that for the deserted believer there is a patient submission to God under desertion and it is sweet even if i saw no reason why was i abandoned when i cry and shout and God still doesn't answer 1 his comforts and his answers are his own free graces. He may do with his own what he thinks good, and grace is no debt. Quote, Hear, O Lord, for your own sake. Unquote. Daniel 9.19 2. Infinite sovereignty may lay silence upon all hearts. Good Hezekiah, quote, What will I say? He has spoken to me, and himself has done it. Unquote. Isaiah 38.15 it is an act of heaven, whatever happens to me, so I bear it with silence. Secondly, she believes. There is a high and noble commandment laid upon the sad spirit. Quote, he that walks in darkness and sees no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord and stay upon his God. Unquote. Isaiah 50, 10. Fill the fields with faith, double or frequent acts of faith. Quote, my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? Unquote. Psalm 22, 1. Two faiths are a double breastwork against the forts of hell. Ephesians 6, 16, 1 Thessalonians 5, 8. In the greatest extremes, believe, even as David in the borders of hell. Quote, yes, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Unquote. Psalm 23, 4. It is a challenge. I believe it is good. It is a cold and a dark shadow to walk at death's right side. Quote, Though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. Unquote. Job 13, 15. 
See Stephen dying and believing both at once. Christ's very dead corpse and his grave in a sort of believing. Quote, my flesh also will be in hope. Unquote. Psalm 16, 9. How sweet to take faith's back band, subscribed by God's own hand, into the cold grave with you, as Christ did. Quote, you will not leave my soul in the grave. Unquote. Verse 10. 4. Faith says, sense is a liar. And the flesh will say about faith, quote, His archers circled around me, he cleaves my reins asunder, and does not spare, and pours out my gall on the ground. Unquote. Job 16.13 But faith says, quote, I have a friend in heaven. Also, now my witness is in heaven. Unquote. Verse 19 Sense makes a lie of God. Quote, he has also kindled his wrath against me, and takes me for his enemy. Unquote. Job 19.11 No, Job, you are the friend of God. See how his faith comes above the water. Quote, I know that my friend by blood, or my Redeemer, lives. Unquote. Verse 25 Third, she waited in hope, and did not take the first or second answer. Hope is long trusted, and at the midnight hour prophesies the good of God. Quote, Though I fall, I will rise again. Unquote. Micah 7, 9. Quote, then I said, I am cast out of your sight, yet I will look toward your holy temple. Unquote. Jonah 2, 4. There is a seed of heaven in hope. When God hid his face from Job, Job 13, 24, yet, quote, he also will be my salvation. Unquote. Verse 16. There is a negative and overclouded hope in the soul at the same time. The believer dares not say Christ will never come again. If he says it, it is in hot blood and in impatience, and he will take back his word again. Isaiah 8, 17. Fourth, she continued praying. She cried, quote, Lord, son of David, have mercy upon me, unquote, and she had no answer. She cries again, till the disciples are troubled with her shouts. She gets a worse answer than no answer, yet she comes and prays. We know the holy willfulness of Jacob. Quote, I will not let you go till you bless me. Unquote. Genesis 32:26. Rain calms the stormy wind. To vent out words in a sad time is the way of God's children. Quote, Your wrath lies hard upon me. My eye mourns by reason of my affliction. Unquote. Psalm 88, verses 7 and 9. And what then? Quote, Lord, I have called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. Unquote. Psalm 22, 2. Christ in the borders of hell prayed, and prayed again, and died praying. Fifth, she still has love for Christ, and is not put off from the duty of adoring. Quote, Whom having not seen, yet you love. Unquote. First Peter 1 8. The deserted soul sees little. There must be love to Christ, where there is 1. Faith in the dark. Faith is with the child of love. 2. Where the believer is willing that his pain and his hell may be a matter of praising God. Quote, Who is as great a God as our God? Unquote. Psalm 77 13. The church was then deserted, as the psalm clarifies. Sixth, she puts Christ on his throne and adores him. 
The deserted soul says, whatever happens to me, he is Jehovah, the Lord. Confession is good in the saddest desertion. Quote, I have sinned. What will I do to you, O preserver of man? Unquote. Job 7.20 The seed of Jacob is in a hard case before God. Lamentations 1.17 And under wrath. Verses 12-14 through 14. Yet, quote, The Lord is righteous, for I have sinned. Unquote. Verse 16 This marks the soul that loves God, how sad the circumstances may be. Seventh, she sees it is a test, as is clear by her instant pursuit of Christ, even after many repulses. It is great mercy that God does not come behind our backs and strikes not in the secret dark. Quote, and I said, this is my infirmity. Unquote. Psalm 77, 10. He gathers his scattered thoughts and takes himself in the temptation. It is mercy, one, to see the temptation in the face. Some lie under a dumb and a deaf temptation that takes away all five senses. Cain is murdered in the dark at midnight with temptation, and he does not know what it means. 2. God's immediate hand should be the focus more than all other temptation. 3. Here the conscience is timid and travels its ways under the trial. When a night traveler dares not to trust the ground he walks on, he is in a sad condition. He is under two evils and has no comfort or confidence. Quote, he that walks in darkness and has no light, unquote, but some glimmering of starlight or half moon under the earth and does not know the ground he walks on, quote, let him trust in the name of the Lord, unquote. Isaiah 50, 10. Eighth, she does not run away from Christ while under abandonment, but one, she comes to him. It is a question what deserted souls will do in that case. See, too, that you do not run from Christ. It was a desertion that Saul was under, and a sad one we read of. But he confesses his condition to the devil instead of God. A sad word, quote, I am sorely distressed, unquote. 1 Samuel 28, 15. There is a heavy and lamentable reason given why, quote, the Philistines make war against me, unquote. Why, that is not much. For they always make war against the people of God. No, but here is the center and the soul of all problems. Quote, God has departed from me. Unquote. Why, foolish man, what good does it do to you to tell the devil God has departed from you? Judas was under a total abandonment. He did not go to Christ, but to the murderers of Christ to open his wound. Quote, I have sinned. Unquote. Fool! You must say that to the Savior of sinners. The church deserted must take herself to Christ and search him out. Quote, Have you seen him who my soul loves? Unquote. Song of Solomon 1, 5. It is a bad sign when men, conceiving themselves to be in trouble, make lies and deceit their refuge. Here is where you make an objection. Isn't it a greater sin to go to Christ while being in a state of sin? What have I to do first to go to him whom I have highly offended? Answer. 1. To run from Christ under desertion is two deaths. 1. Desertion is one, and if real, the saddest hell outside of hell. 2. To flee from Christ and life is another death. Now to come to him, though he should kill you for your presumption, is but one death, and a little one in comparison of the other. And one little death is a better choice than two great deaths. 2. Consider how living a death it is to be killed doing a duty and aiming to flee into Christ. 
better die by Christ's own hand, if it must be the case, as by another's hand, and better be buried and lie dead at his feet as to run away from him and live in desertion. If the believer must die, it is better his grave is to be made under the throne and under the feet of Jesus Christ as to die in a state of strangeness and alienation from Christ. All the deserted ones that we read of did flee into God. Psalm 34, 39, 88. Job 13, 15. Isaiah 38. 3. It is good to claim him as your God, though he should deny you, and crawl to him, though he should throw you out of his sight. Better kiss the sword that kills you and be slain with his own hand as cast away your confidence from approaching God. Quote, but she came and worshipped, A heavier temptation cannot befall a soul tender of Christ's love than to cry to God and not be answered, and to cry and receive a flat and downright renouncing of the poor pleader. Yet this does not thrust her from continuing her duty. She comes and worships and prays. It is a blessed mark when a temptation does not thrust a soul from a duty. And, one, when the danger and sad trial is seen, it is good to keep going on. Christ knew before that he would suffer and when they would apprehend him, yet he went to the garden to spend a piece of the night in prayer. It was told to Paul by Agabus, if he went to Jerusalem, the Jews should bind him and deliver him to the Gentiles. It was his duty to go, and he said, quote, why do you weep and break my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but to die for the name of Jesus. Unquote. Acts 21.13 Dying could not thrust him from a duty. He ran the risk of death to go in to see the king. Yet aware of his duty calling him, he goes on in faith. Quote, if I perish, I perish. Unquote. 2. In the act of suffering, Christ on the cross prays and converts the thief. Paul with an iron chain upon his body, preaches Christ before Agrippa and his enemies, and preaching Christ was the crime. Paul and Silas, with bloody shoulders, must sing psalms in the stocks. 3. Indefinitely. After the trial and when the temptation is on, yet the saints go on. Quote, All this has come on us. Unquote. Psalm 44.17 There is the temptation, the duty. Quote, yet we have not forgotten you and not dealt falsely in your covenant, unquote. Quote, princes speak against me, unquote. There is a temptation, yet here is a duty. Quote, but your servant did meditate on your statutes, unquote. Psalm 119, 23. Quote, my soul faints for your salvation, but I hope in your word, unquote. Verse 81. Quote, the wicked have laid a snare for me, yet I did not stray from your precepts. Unquote. Verse 110. Quote, Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not diminish your testimonies. Unquote. Verse 157. Quote, they fought against me without a cause. Unquote. Psalm 109. 3. Quote, For my love, they were my adversaries, but I gave myself to prayer. Unquote. Verse 4. 1. It is a sign of a sweet, humbled servant who can take an attack and yet go about his master's service. And when a soul can pass through fire and water to stay at a duty, for then the conscience of the duty has more prevailing power to act obedience than the salt and bitterness of the temptation has power to subdue and vanquish the spirit. It is likely grace will have the day and win against any corruption. 2. 
it proves a soul well-watched and kept from the incursion of an imbibing sin and a homebred corruption. For the temptation will attack wherever the weak place of temptation is, as fire kindles the nearest powder and dry timber, and then grows. Quote, they prevented me on the day of my calamity. Unquote. Psalm 18, 18. Quote, I was upright before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Unquote. Verse 23. The devil has a friend within us. Now there are degrees of friends, some nearer of blood than others. The man's own flesh is the dearer friend to Satan than any other sin. If pride is the predominant sin, it is then as easy as Satan's firstborn, for he runs his business by pride. 3. So it may be argued that the soul steeled and fortified with grace takes occasion from the sinfulness of the temptation and the edge of it to be more zealous and active in duties. David scoffed at by Michael, said, quote, I will be more vile yet, unquote. So, quote, all that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head, unquote. Psalm 22, 7. Quote, he trusted in the Lord, unquote. Verse 8. See here a heavy temptation, but his faith digs deeper to the first experience of God's goodness. Quote, but you are he that took me out of the womb, unquote. Verse 9. As the church mocked with this, quote, sing us one of the songs of Zion, unquote, Psalm 137, raises a higher esteem of Zion because Zion's songs are scoffed at. Let them mock Zion as they listen, quote, but if I forget Zion, unquote, verse 5, then I pray God, quote, my tongue may become stuck to the roof of my mouth, unquote, verse 6. So the thief, hearing Christ blasphemed and railed on by his fellows, does take more boldness to extol him as a king. Quote, Lord, remember me when you come to your kingdom. Unquote. Grace appears the more gracious and active when it has an enemy. Opposites in nature, such as fire and water, show off their greatest strength when they actually confront each other. Use 1. Antinomians or libertines turn grace into a temptation and then cast off all duties, as, quote, Christ has pardoned all sin, his righteousness imputed is mine. Why do you speak to me of law and duties? Unquote. The way that cries against duties and sanctification is not the way of grace. Grace is an innocent thing and will not take men off from their duties. Grace does not destroy obedience. Christ has made faith a friend to the law. The death of Christ does not destroy grace's activity in duties. It is true, grace trusted in grows ourselves, but does not grow grace any. And self cannot storm heaven and take Christ by passion. Grace, though near of kindred to Christ, as it is received in us, is but a creature, and so may be made an idol when we trust in it and seek not Christ first. And before created grace, but believing and doing are blood friends. John eleven twenty six. Use 2. This lesson should be remembered that in difficulties and trials, we keep from wicked ways. It was unique to Christ to be angry and not to sin. To be like us, quote, in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin, unquote. Hebrews 4, 15. With this difference, Christ was tempted but cannot sin. The saints are tempted but dare not sin. The law of God, honeyed with the love of Christ, has a majesty and power to keep us from sin. 
So Christ made under the law for us, Isaiah 53, 7, quote, was oppressed, he was afflicted, unquote. Oppression will make a sinful man mad, but it could not work upon Christ, quote, he was oppressed, yet he did not open his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, unquote. So all Christ's followers did. They are tempted, but grace puts a power of tenderness on them. Joseph, when tempted, says, quote, How can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Unquote. Genesis 39, 9. David is reproached by Shimei, but he dares not avenge himself. Job, tempted more than any man, yet, quote, In all this, Job did not sin, nor accused God foolishly. Unquote. Job 1, 22. I confess that the temptation does sometimes obtain half a consent. Nabal tempted David, so that he resolved to be avenged. 2. And when it does, it will leave a scar and a handicap behind it in some, for their whole life. Peter will all his life be known to be the one that once swore off his Lord. But this is fearful when men both create temptations by defending a bad cause, as holy men may have an unholy cause, and then can find no way to carry it out but by crooked policy and deceit. We are now being pursued by bad men with an unjust war. To embrace peace upon any dishonorable terms to Christ is to desert a duty for fear of a temptation. On the other side, to refuse an offer of peace because many innocent persons have been killed is also yielding to a temptation. For by war we kill many more innocent ones, and it is against the Lord's counsel that says, quote, Seek peace, unquote. Psalm 34, 14. That is, as much as we are not to be spectators only, but agents, even when we are wronged in seeking peace. But what if peace flees from me? I confess that this is a temptation. Then the Lord says, follow after it. The word darash is diokain, Hebrews 12:14. The Syro-Chaldee interpretation is, run after peace, compel peace, and force it as men follow an enemy. Let us pursue after things of peace, Romans 14:9, diokomen. Use 3. See the sweet use of faith under a sad temptation. Faith moves with Christ and heaven in the dark, upon plain trust and credit, without seeing any certainty or plan. Quote, Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Unquote. John 20, 29. And the reason is, because faith is the foundation and bone of spiritual courage. Faith keeps you protected like a walled city against hell. Yes, with it you are able to stand under impossibilities. And here is a weak woman, though not as a woman, yet as a believer, standing out against him, who is, quote, the mighty God, the Father of ages, the Prince of Peace, unquote. Isaiah 9, 6. Faith alone stands out and overcomes the sword, the world, and all afflictions. 1 John 5, 4. This is our victory, how one man overcomes the great and vast world.
Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revived Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Chris Bell. Christopher Bell is a member of Fairview Baptist Church in Calgary, Alberta. His church recently had his pastor, Tim Stevens, go to jail for 17 days for defying Canada's lockdown order. If you enjoyed this episode of Revived Thoughts, we encourage you to join us on Patreon, where you can listen to our deep dives, Joan of Arc, The First Crusade, Salem of Trials, where you can get ad-free versions of Revived Thoughts and Martyrs and Missionaries, and where you can also uh, get access to other things like behind the mics. And finally, you can also uh, get some merchandise and some fun stuff like that. So please join us on Patreon. Every dollar that you send helps us to do this show an incredible amount. We're really grateful when you send that in and help us out and support us over there and also we have officially put on the date on the calendar when joel and i will be recording part one of the next deep dive so we're very excited to be doing that and be bringing that to you and our patreon supporters very soon so make sure you are signed up and all caught up so you're ready to go this is troy and joel and this is revive thoughts